Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Please welcome this evening's guest moderator from IndieWire, John Anderson, and tonight's guests, Marshall Curry and Matthew Van Dyke. I brought notes. I never read them. Um, Marshall, you never do, um, as far as I can remember, there's never a creation story in your films. You never explain how you got into them. Um, as far as I remember, I'm not even sure you explained how Daniel McGowan and you met, which was a pretty good story, but yeah. it's not in the film. Um, how did you and Matt get together? Um, well, it was a, it was, for me, it was a, a stroke of good luck. Matt just emailed out of the blue and said uh, that he had just returned from Libya and he had this amazing footage. He'd been over there fighting and, and he'd taken a camera with him, so he had this amazing footage of the war and also of the, the three-year, you know, 35,000-mile motorcycle journey that he'd taken, which had been kind of the, the lead-up to the war. Um, and so he and Lauren, who's his girlfriend who appears in the movie and is also here and tonight. And who is here. Yes. Um, they came up to New York and, and met with uh, my wife, who's also my producing partner on the project. And the four of us spent a number of hours and they just told this incredible story. And, um, and you know, we looked at some of the footage and, and uh, after they left, my wife and I spent, you know, hours and hours just talking about the story and all the kind of questions and issues that it raised. And, um, you know, one of the reasons that I make documentaries is to try to get conversations like that out into the world. And so, uh, so we thought, well, maybe we should just try to reproduce the experience we just had of meeting an amazing person and, and hearing him tell his story. Yeah. Matt, what, what, did you, were you familiar, you were familiar with Marshall's films? Um, you know, when, when, I, when I came back, I, I spent years filming uh, with the intention of doing a film up until the point I went to Libya, when Libya it was it was more of a personal video diary thing. But but I, I decided that I, I wasn't going to have time to really direct a film right now because I wanted to work for the Syrian Revolution. Uh, so I went and I started googling who was nominated for Academy Awards, and I went down the list. Good for something, I guess, right? And I contacted nominees. Um, I, I watched uh, *The Tree Falls*, um, and you know. Marshall, impressive, impressive uh, resume and and the nominations and available and you know we seemed to, to hit it off all right when we met so he was, seemed to be the guy that I was going to bring on to do this. Well, one of the um, the really interesting issues in the film beyond just your adventures is the subtext about movies and how we see ourselves and how we try to reimagine ourselves through the photos we take and the videos we take and the movies we make or want to make, um, there's a question at the end of the film about whether this is the movie that you had in mind when you set out to make your movie. Um, you guys, I don't know if you, you talked about that or it just sort of hung, maybe it's the elephant in the room or, I mean, how do you feel now that this movie has been done? Do you feel like it fulfilled what you wanted to do when you set out? Um, I mean, that's, that's a separate film that I still haven't made, you know. I mean, that, that project, I'm still going to do it, whether I'll do it as a, as a series or whether I'll do it as a standalone film, I don't know. Um, you know, Marshall's perspective uh, involves a lot of different elements beyond just adventure filmmaking or, or my story. I mean, my story is sort of incorporated into this, but it's also about 
um, the role of cameras in modern society and, and the way war is, you know, a lot of people are having a gun in one hand and a camera in the other. So it touches on a lot of themes that, that's, that's Marshall's perspective that he brings to it that goes beyond just my story. So I wouldn't, you know, my film's still yet to be made when I have time to do it, but, you know, this film at least uh, takes elements of my story, puts a twist on it, and, uh, yeah, I know you like it. I do. Yeah, so it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I've, I've gone public with my reference for this film. Um, one of the... Um, you're very, you're very frank about yourself. You, you, you're not, you're very candid about your own doubts and the, you know, your, your issue with OCD. And did you sense, Marshall, when you first had the, your initial conversations that you were going to be able to, that, that Matt was an open enough guy that you were going to be able to make this film? Yeah, I mean, that was really what sort of sold me on it in the first place was when they came up, he's, he was, extremely self-reflective and very kind of open about about the challenges that he had gone through and the questions that he had and the and the struggles and 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 uh, that to me was what was so amazing I mean obviously there's an amazing adventure story but the the thing that made me say oh I really want to direct this film is it was was the the human story and 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 Matt's willingness to to sort of share that story with with people when we show, which clip should we show? Yeah, so I think there's a one-minute teaser that, that'll just give a super-fast overview. When I graduated from Georgetown, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do at all. I decided I'm going to hit every single Arab country. I bought sawed-off shotguns, where I kept them under my clothes for self-defense. Got attacked by a village mob. It was just one crazy adventure after another. A revolution is spreading across the Arab world. The protest movement is now spreading to Libya, where Colonel Muammar Gaddafi runs one of the most repressive regimes in the entire region. I could not imagine sitting at home watching on TV my friends being killed. Well, I'm now in Libya. I've just crossed the border. They were firing at us from buildings. They were using snipers. And then I woke up in prison to the sound of a man being tortured in the room above me. It might be an impolite question, but if Matt had given you a bunch of footage that was completely a garbled mess, would you have backed out gracefully? Well, I mean, we looked at the footage and talked about it before, so I knew that there was amazing stuff in there. Because I, I, I don't know how you shoot, you shot some of that stuff. I mean, you're, you're, you're shooting most of it. I mean, you, you did have other people shoot some of it for you, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I handed the camera off. You saw where, where I was shooting the heavy machine gun there. Um, a lot of times those guys didn't really know how to use it. So sometimes I get it back and it was off, um, which is quite frustrating. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, over the years, I had to mostly film myself, though. 
So I'd set up tripods on a sand dune and then go and drive past it a few times and then it would fall in the sand and messed up my camera. And I went through lots of problems like this um, for years. And, and part of the travels, I would meet up with, with maybe another motorcyclist and they would film a little bit for me. But for the most part, it was solo filmmaking, which was quite difficult. Um, you know, it's a lot harder than just like shooting selfies. And you initially went over in 2007? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I entered Africa for the first time in 2007, so, early so, 2007. So were you looking at four years worth of footage? Yeah, there were a couple hundred hours of footage. And it's funny because it, it starts with many DV tapes, and then it sort of graduates to, to, to cards, and then it gets better and better. So fortunately, it goes that way instead of the other way. But, but over the course of the movie, the footage gets better and better and better. So. One of the things that this, this clip uh, reminds me of is, is you know, you, 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 you talk about OCD. Um, and when you finally went back home, and then the Libyan revolution broke out, and you immediately went back, what occurred to me that was, was that perhaps this had something to do with your OCD. It was an unfinished, um, something in your life that was unfinished and you couldn't leave it unfinished. Um, was there a connection, do you think? Um, no, I mean, my, my OCD, the obsessions and things with loose ends are really just, for me, limited to the hand washing and the, the fear of sugar and anxiety about driving. Um, no, going, going to Libya was really about friendship um, and, and some ideology. Having seen all those years on the motorcycle, country after country, how backward and, and regressive instead of progressive the countries were. Um, you know, I had had friends who had been in prison in various countries. Um, I had been arrested in various countries and not treated particularly well in some of them. So I, I had sort of seen the effects of authoritarianism and that meshed with the fact that people I knew, personal friends in Libya were suffering and, and that just really compelled me to go, regardless of my OCD or, or anything else. I mean, it is a, you know, it's, it's an issue in the film, so it's, that's why I ask. Can we go to that clip, the, the prison clip? Maybe. I was hit in the head during whatever happened. I was in and out of consciousness for days. I don't know where I was. I was transported quite far. Then I woke up in prison to the sound of a man being tortured in the room above me. I had this blindfold on, and they came and interrogated me. And they started playing video off my camera. It was a clip of Nori. At the end of the clip, I said, Nori, you remind me every day why we fight. And the interpreter said, you will never see America again. down my nails, cut down my toenails a piece of plastic spoon, um, thinking they were going to rip out my nails to torture me. 
They never came and interrogated me again. I figured that they had enough from the video camera. They didn't need to ask me any questions. It was all there. It took me out three times a day to go use the squat toilet. These black bugs would crawl into my cell at night, climb on the walls, climb on me sometimes, bugs that lived in the toilet. Trash piled up there were maggots. And my OCD got really bad. And that was, that was gonna be the rest of my life. Um, that's Joe Posner's animation? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a very interesting decision you made to do it from Matt's POV. Can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, and just to sort of set it up, so Matt, uh, about a third of the way through the movie, decides to go and join the Libyan revolution. While he's there, he's captured by Gaddafi's troops, and, 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 and this, is, this is what happened. Well, up until um, till the time he was captured, he had had a camera with him, so he was documenting everything. And when he gets out of prison, he buys another camera. But we had this hole from the five and a half months while he was in solitary confinement where we didn't have, um, where we didn't have anything to show. And so um, fortunately, after the war, Matt had gone back to the cell and had, taken, fil had filmed the, the cell. So we had photos and, and video footage. In fact, that's a photograph of the actual cell. Um, and, uh, and so we knew what it looked like. So we built a 3D animation of the cell and then decided that rather than be outside looking at Matt or looking at any of the people that he interacted with, the guards or people like that, we would have everything be Matt's perspective. And, um, and that was mostly a, 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 an attempt to try to give the audience, you know, in as tiny a way as possible uh, uh, or as much a way as possible, which is tiny. Um, the experience of what it would be like to be in that prison cell. And, and over the course of the, of the time that he's in uh, prison, he begins to have these auditory hallucinations, which we also illustrate using this um, kind of hand-drawn cell animation. So all of the, all of the environment is, is 3D computer uh, renderings, and all of the, you know, his feet or his hands or, or the things that he's interacting with are all, you know, frame-by-frame hand-drawn. Hand but it, it's, it's also, it also kind of flips what's been going on for the rest of the movie because suddenly you, won't, you only have this one perspective, right? So, so it kind of comments on the, 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 the photographic critique that you're making in the film. It does, it does, but it also echoes the rest of the thing because Matt was the one who was shooting things. So, so much, I mean, there are times where he sets up a camera or where he hands off the camera, but so much of what we see are the things that Matt saw. We're, we, we are literally seeing through his eyes the, the, the war, the motorcycle trip, the, those other experiences. So, um, so we you know, tried to, to keep that going a little bit. There were some really, uh, I, I mean, it's not funny, but there, I mean, in, in Libya, there's, a, there's this one shot that you have of a, a bunch of fighters who have fewer guns than they have cell phones. And, they, and they're, all, they're all shooting the action and uh, <laughs> was that was that sort of typical? Yeah, I mean that's that's the nature of modern war now. At least where citizen soldiers are involved, um, guys want to show off what they're doing, and so they all film themselves. 
uh, U.S. soldiers do it too, um, not to the same extent because of regulations and so on, and they have commanders who care about that. But um, yeah, and, and the videos actually aren't just used for that purpose, they're used for recruitment. Um, units have their own logo they put on the videos, they upload them to YouTube of missions they do, or uh, they, they use it to fundraise, they use it for recruitment, especially in Syria now. But yeah, I mean, this is how war is gonna be from now on. Participants filming. There were die-hard loyalists that were not going to surrender. This was the most filmed war in history. With cameras everywhere. There were guys with cell phone cameras in the middle of gunfights. Cell phone and camera in one hand, AK-47 in the other. And these guys, their concept of war is what they saw on television and movies. Guys standing up with machine guns by themselves in the middle of, of the battle and, and just spraying ammunition at the enemy. They want another picture taken with the big gun. Things that they can, they can show to friends, to family, to, to women they like to impress. And you felt it as well? Yeah, I, I felt it as well. Everybody wants something they can share on Facebook. Everybody tries to create their idealized image of, of how they want to be seen and who they want to be. Uh, Matt, you were saying that you've been in and out of Syria. Um, and made a short film about it. Is this, um, is this going on there as well, or is it a different situation? Yeah, it's going on there probably more than it was going on in Libya even. Um, you know, I think the count now is tens of thousands of videos uploaded to YouTube out of Syria. And, and part of the reason it goes on even more is again because it's used for recruitment. It's used for competition and bragging rights between units, um, which, is, it's, which is a much bigger deal in Syria because of the length of the conflict and the lack of organization. There really is competition between units for resources and for funding from donors outside the country. So they really have to show off, basically, to get, to get the funding uh, and to get people to join their unit. I mean, one of the things that was so interesting to me when I started looking at the footage and, and hearing Matt talk about this phenomenon of people all filming themselves, you know, even in the midst of the most crucial life and death, high-minded experiences. I mean, they're fighting for the freedom of their country, and, and yet they still want to get a good shot. And, and of course, I was struck when I thought about it, 
that it's kind of, it's not just Libyans, it's not just American troops, it's everybody who has a Twitter account and a Facebook and an Instagram, we're all sort of struggling with this, you know, documenting ourselves and trying to be present in a moment at the same time as we're trying to think of a, a clever tweet to, to, to extract from the moment and, and you know, or, or to, to get a shot of something even as we're trying to, to, to be present. And, and that's, a, that's something that, that documentary filmmakers have been struggling with for a long time, but now, it's, now that everybody has an iPhone and everybody has a, a Facebook account, it's something that everybody's sort of thinking about a little bit. Well, you're not supposed to text and drive. I mean, how about texting and, and, and firing machine guns and you're, or dodging bullets? It seems a little hazardous. Yeah, I mean, I, I never saw anybody do it at a time that was so critical that they put aside their responsibilities or, or got themselves in trouble with it. Um, but that said, I'm pretty sure, probably in Syria, a guy has stood out in the street too long filming and gotten shot by a sniper. I'm sure it's happened. Um, there actually are videos of guys who, from their first-person perspective, get shot by a sniper uh, while filming. Um, we're going to take questions from the audience. Thank you. Uh, it's a question for Marshall. Um, Marshall, you're, you often are following a subject and it's unfolding in front of you as you're making a film. In this case, it seems like you had the film before you started to make it. I'm wondering what unique challenges that may have posed for you. Was it easier for you? Was it an easier experience for you to have actually your third act before you started or did you? Um, so curious about that, um, the process for you uh, relative to your other films and whether you see this thematically at all connected to your other films. Um, well, in some ways, uh, th this was the first time I hadn't shot the film that, that, you know, that, that I was working with. And um, in some ways that was a challenge because when I'm shooting, I'm shooting it with an idea of the movie that I'm making in mind. So I know... I'm constantly kind of editing as I'm shooting, mentally editing, so I know, okay, well, I need this kind of shot and this kind of shot in order to build this scene, and here's what I'm interested in, and that's what I'm not interested in. Um, of course, when Matt's shooting, he has his own ideas of, of all of those same questions. So, um, so in some cases, there were challenges that I, I wouldn't have had to deal with had I shot it. Of course, in other cases, it was a, it was a you know, mana from heaven. I didn't have to go to Libya and put my life on the line and, and work for years and years and years collecting all of this footage. So, um, so you know, there were trade-offs that, that in some ways made it creatively much easier, in some cases much more difficult. Hi, this question's for Matt. I was wondering, um, before you decided to go back to Libya, I'm sure it also influenced you to go back. When you went back to participate, how active were you in maybe contributing ideas or why you were fighting? Were you kind of just like, I'm doing what the group's doing, I'm here as a support system, did you become more involved? What was really like your personal interest or your personal thoughts in shaping? the situation as much as you possibly could have, if that was even on your mind? Um, in a lot of ways, I was just like any of the other fighters. Um, but fortunately, our commander trusted Nori and I. Nori is, is a Libyan that I had known for years before the war started, and, and during the war, he was the driver of the Jeep and I was the gunner. Um, the commander trusted us a lot, and so when, when our unit was at the base or guarding the base. Uh, he gave Nori and I the freedom to go out and go to the front line and fight alongside other units. So Nori and I tried to stay active 
Um, we saw quite a lot of action, I think about 40 engagements total with the enemy. Instead of, and then when the unit needed us, we would join the unit on missions. But we were sort of like anybody else, but with a little more freedom um, of movement. And, and we hated to just sit. We always liked to be up, making sure we were contributing as much as we could and being active. And you also, you also had more experience than some of these people with, with arms, right? Yeah, at the start of the war, out of our, our original unit, um, which was almost all wiped out at Brega when I was captured. Um, I, I had, when I was in Iraq and Afghanistan filming the U.S. military, uh, I asked the soldiers to take me to the range and showed me how the weapons worked. So they showed me how to use everything from, um, you know, small arms all the way up to Humvee-mounted grenade launchers. <laughs> and I fired the stuff on a range, and they showed me how to use the sighting, the sights and everything. So by the time I got to Libya, I had more experience with weapons, and especially with heavy weapons like heavy machine gun, like the Dushka that I used in the war, because I would shot a 50 cal on American Humvee before. So I at least had a basic understanding. Uh, this is from Matt. I'm sure this is uh, sort of the, the cusp of the film, but I'm interested if you could uh, just momentarily take us into... Uh, an insurrection, uh, how rebellion starts, like being in these neighborhoods and, and beginning to meet people who are not fighting. We were talking um, about how the people were taking the videos and capturing themselves on cell phones. Just uh, can you tell us like how it felt to see a citizen uh, going from a plumber or a, a weaver or whatever to the next, holding a pistol or a gun and, and fighting a war um, in the next moment? Uh, it's, it's probably the greatest thing in the world that I've ever seen is people getting up and doing something and taking action and taking their destiny in their own hands and putting their life on the line, you know, for their, for their own country. You know, it, at the beginning of the war, I was captured about a week before NATO joined the war. And at the time I was captured, it looked like nobody was going to help Libya. We didn't think NATO would get involved. So there were very few, a few hundred men at the most, we're going from Benghazi towards the front line, and, and, we, and we were part of that group. There were guys just sitting in the cafe in Benghazi waiting for Gaddafi to come wipe us out, probably thinking we were all fools. Um, but the men that I saw, especially then at the beginning, who, who went and stood up, and with all we had was mounted gun in the back of a pickup truck. Um, the tanks were still inoperable. They were still trying to get the tanks running. So yeah, that, that was the best, the best part. But that's part of the greatest thing of the war was the camaraderie. And everybody had a sense that they were doing something important and that they were all on the right side. And there was just a brotherhood of unity of purpose that, that you rarely see, especially in you know, our comfortable lives here in the Western world where our, most of our concerns are entertainment and consumerism. Here it was like people fighting for just the rawest most basic freedoms. And a guy, yes, would be driving a taxi cab one day, and a week later he might be a tank driver. And it was the, the greatest thing to see somebody step up and do that and risk their life day after day in that way. Hey, how you doing? What was your interest in Syria? Um, I, I'd been to Syria three times before the war started in Syria. Uh, the reason I went to Syria is after Libya, actually during the war in Libya, 
myself, other rebels were talking about going to Syria to fight. And some went, I wanted to go with them. The problem was that there was a lack of weapons and ammunition uh, for, for fighters. They had enough fighters at that time in Syria, but they didn't have weapons and ammo or international support. So I went and made a film uh, first, a short film that I released for free on the internet. Um, it's gone on to win 43 awards now. That film was made to try to move public opinion in America and Europe to try to encourage more international support for them so they could get what they needed to help them win. And then I was going to go fight, and now there's problems with ISIS, which is basically Al-Qaeda in Syria, um, disunity, disorganization, other factors that have kept me out of the fight so far. But it was primarily ideological. I believe the regime has to fall in Syria, just as in Libya. And after that, every authoritarian regime in the world, I hope that my grandchildren will grow up in a world where they only know of authoritarianism from history books. Hi, I'm, I'm curious in particular about Matthew, uh, your background, and especially why you were pushed to do what you did. I mean, was it because you were living here, you were bored of your daily life, or was it because you thought the uh, rebels' cause was a just cause? And for you, Marshall, what was, that, what, what was it that fascinated you about his character? I haven't seen the film, but it, sound, it sounds So that's the first third of the movie. That's what you're asking for. It's Because uh, it, it, it starts with Matt's early childhood and, 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 and takes us through a number of different developmental stages that he went through. And... Um, and, uh, and, you know, there's this obvious question. Well, why would somebody from Baltimore go and join a Libyan revolution as a rebel? And, 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 and that's what we sort of hope to uh, answer in the film. I don't know if you want to give the, 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 the Cliff Notes answer or, or if we want to... Yeah, I can give the Cliff Notes answer. Um, I'd been to Libya before in 2008 for about a month and a half. I made really good friends there who were the best friends I made during, during all my travels for all those years. Uh, and so I had known them three or four years before the war even started. When the war started, I was talking to them, still in contact with them. They were telling me about things that were happening to, to people they cared about and it looked like nobody was gonna help. One of them said one day, why doesn't anybody help us? And it, I just realized I couldn't just sit at home and watch this happened to people that I cared about, so I went. It was mostly personal, um, partly ideological. Matthew, you use the word ideology a lot. <laughs> now I'm curious, what is this ideology? Um, it's quite simple, actually. I, I believe in liberty, democracy promotion. Um, it's not a perfect form of government, but it's the best we have. Um, and I just believe that people should be free to choose their own leaders and their own destiny. And it's not just about casting a ballot, it's a transformative effect on a society. You can see that in countries where people don't feel like they have any stake in their future or in who, they, who their leaders are, they tend to just sit back, blame everything on the government, and the country just degrades. And you see immediately after, actually during the Libyan revolution, once they had control of the East you saw people doing things like organizing their own trash pickup service and um, organizing, volunteering, getting food supplies to us on the front line. Just civilians stepping up once they finally feel like they can actually make a difference in their own community. It, it's a transformative effect throughout a society that 
goes way beyond the, the ink-stained finger that, that the press likes to show pictures of. I'd like to thank our guests. Um, in wrapping up, I just want to say, I, if you haven't been intrigued by the clips or by what we've been talking about, let me just say that Marshall has made a, a number of films that always have great characters and great stories on paper, but there's always something else. There's always a, um, there's always multiple subtexts and reflections on the culture at large that sort of elevate his documentaries to beyond your standard issue nonfiction film. And I think this is a, is a great example of that and, um, and a great example of what can be done in the, in the form. So I recommend it highly and uh, thanks again. And so thanks much to Apple and uh, thank you. Thank you.